Prestige heads, and welcome to this week's bonus American Prestige. And of course, Chag Sameach to uh, my fellow Jewish listeners. Uh, this will be released on Saturday, uh, the day before Hanukkah starts. And we thought that it would be interesting to do a deep dive onto the actual history of the Maccabees, the story around which the modern holiday of uh, Hanukkah is actually um, organized and, and was the inspiration for the story. And for that reason, we've uh, brought on Joseph Scales, an independent scholar of ancient Judaism and Jewish antiquity that we're very, very proud to have. Have here and as always, um, I'm Danny Bessner, and here with Derek Davison. So, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Derek. I know you had a first question, so why don't you just yeah, get us started? I I, I wanted to start us off, and and this is going to be a really general question. So, Joseph, please, you know, kind of distill it down as you think would be necessary to tell this story. But one of the things that um, as as somebody who comes to this entirely from just kind of reading the, the Hebrew scriptures and you get to Maccabees, and um, th- one of the things that stands out to me is the question of the institutions of the state. And the Maccabees represent a change from a, a divided kingship and high priesthood to something that's more like a priestly king order. Um, and it's, it's n- not something that I feel like I have any background to comment on, but it's a, sh- it's kind of a stunning, uh, development as you're reading this, this narrative. And so, uh, basically my question to you is, uh, what do we know about the state of the institutions uh, of the Judean kind of polity as it existed uh, kind of on the on the cusp of the the Maccabean revolt so as we get through the uh, the Babylonian captivity and the the you know reintroduction into the the the, the land and uh, get into this Hellenistic era what what do the institutions look like what does the the state I guess if you want to call it that what does it look like and then maybe just to piggyback on that, Joe, I think this would provide a good um, way to talk about the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and the post-Alexandrian geopolitical equation. So basically, I think what we're asking is to set the scene, both geopolitically and then in terms of, as Derek said, state institutions. Great. Um, and I think you've kind of alluded to lots of the things that I'll just touch on, um, but I thought it might be quite useful just to do a real kind of almost chronological breakdown of how we get to this point kind of um the mid 160s um so i'm going to say bce throughout um they're simply just like a scholarly convention so instead of using bc and ad um we tend to use well some of us tend to use bce before common era and ce common era the dates are exactly the same we actually use the american prestige calendar before american prestige and after american (laughs) prestige so okay this is three thousand that's going to be tricky to (laughs) yeah that's going to be tricky to do it on the fly but okay so anyway just as a as a kind of that's why i'm i'm just going to default to using bce so um just to make that really clear 
Um, and there are reasons why some people use them and some people don't, but, you know, that kind of doesn't matter hugely. So as, as you kind of mentioned, there's this Babylonian deportation. So kind of in the 6th century BCE, um, this kind of small, um, at the time, kingdom of Judah is kind of a small province in the southern Levant. Um, that's kind of the region now that's uh, kind of modern Israel-Palestine. Um, so in the 6th century, uh, the Neo-Babylonian Empire... Um, kind of is asserting itself um, and the kings of Judah kind of getting a bit of hot water and, um, you know, long story short, uh, the Judean temple, the Jerusalem temple, um, which kind of is often known as Solomon's temple, is meant to have been built by Solomon, uh, is destroyed. Lots of the kind of elite, um, but many other people are deported to Babylon um, at this point. They're following the footsteps of previous ancient Near Eastern empires. So um, the Near Assyrian kingdom uh, was kind of quite famous for deporting people and not just the elites, but just completely depopulating areas. So um, uprooting people, marching them to the other end of their kind of vast empire and then resettling them there. Um, and this was kind of a lot of their way of moving around uh, different peoples, trying to displace them, breaking up things like um, kind of let's say, tribal or local allegiances and things like that. So the Neo-Babylonians are carrying on much the same thing, but perhaps less broad in scope. Um, so they, they did these deportations. Um, eventually, uh, Cyrus the Great, as he's known, kind of uh, in the kind of about 70 years after the temple was destroyed, uh, has this kind of great declaration and it's kind of celebrated um, that the Jews are free to return to Jerusalem. Some of them do, some of them don't. So we and have Cyrus the Great until- is the Persian Empire, right? Yes. He's yeah. the founding He's dynasty the of the Persian Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Thank and then you goes for into that. Darius yeah. and then goes into Artaxerxes, or Xerxes, yeah. I believe. Yeah. A really at some point, the, the naked Greeks beat them up i don't i don't know oh yeah <laughs> so um yeah a bunch of 300 <laughs> 300 buff naked greeks come come looking for an ass kicking yeah and then after this kind of happens um there's a period where we have the persian yehud um and thank you for the uh clarification that cyrus yes he's a kind of persian ruler um this new big ancient Near Eastern empire um there's a lot more autonomy that kind of goes on so the temple um as it becomes known in Jerusalem, the second temple, which gives rise to the second temple period, um, is built. Um, we have this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so all of this kind of complete change. And the Persians are very different in terms of how they structure um, their kind of local uh, satrapies or provinces. And they tend to give, uh, let's say, a bit more autonomy in some regards with around taxation and kind of local rulership. Um, so that kind of carries on. And then um, in... What year is that? So this is the late 6th century, the temple starts to be rebuilt. Um, and then it just kind of carries on throughout the 4th. Um, in the, towards the, kind of the last third of the 4th century BC. So this is um, around the 330s. Uh, Alexander the Great, everyone's favourite Macedonian, um, <laughs> rocks up in the Levant and just begins this kind of swathe of conquest. Um, This shakes up the ancient Near Eastern world as we know it um, in some ways, and in some ways there's a lot of continuity. So what happens is, um, you know, you may be familiar with the story of Alexander the Great, um, but 
conquers much of the ancient Near East, all the way up to kind of the borders of India, um, from Greece, modern Greece, Macedonia. Um, and then uh, he dies around 320 BCE. And what happens? We have this uh, period called the Wars of the Diadochoi, which is the Wars of the Successor Kingdoms. Um, and out of this kind of shakes lots of these other um, big houses, these uh, in kind of imperial dynasties, like whether they're kingdoms or empires is kind of a bit of a um, debate, let's say. Um, but ultimately, as far as we're concerned in this region, there are two main empires. Uh, and this is the Seleucid or Seleucid, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and the Ptolemaic Empire. Um, the Ptolemaic Empire are based in Alexandria. They're founded by Ptolemy I. Um, his kind of claim to, uh, let's say, rulership at this time is he secures Alexander the Great's body and brings it back to Alexandria. And it's this kind of legitimization process. And Joe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is basically the Ptolemaic dynasty that eventually leads to Cleopatra, right? Oh, it's yeah. It's this one uh, line, yeah. Yeah, they, and they kind of carry on. Um, this is a Greek uh, family, so they initially begin, the, the successors are all Alexander's generals, um, but they, they end up kind of marrying and integrating. And um, by the time we get to the well-known Cleopatra, she's actually Cleopatra VIII, they recycle a lot of their names. So you'll find uh, all the Ptolemies are called Ptolemy or Cleopatra, and all the Seleucids are called Seleucus or Antiochus. So it's just lots and lots of the same names. So we have these kind of two kingdoms, and this is what happens kind of at the outset of the 3rd century BCE. So where is um, the Seleucid Empire based? So Ptolemies in, in roughly modern-day Egypt, and the Seleucid Empire is where? I, I remember being quite quite large, um, but Ptolemy had the breadbasket of the world in Egypt, so that's really mm -hmm. crucial. So where is Seleucid? And so uh, they abut themselves in Israel, so could you just give a sense of the mm -hmm. geography? So kind of stretching from modern-day Turkey, um, and there's some debates around this, what we'd call in the ancient world Asia Minor, um, the kind of seat of power, at least for part of this, and sometimes they move them around, is Antioch, um, I think on the Orentes, if I'm mistaken, but kind of modern-day Syria. Um, and then it stretches right the way over, kind of abutting, um, I think, almost the Caspian Sea um, and e India way off to the direction. So you get kind of these uh, developing kingdoms later, like Greco-Roman Bac Bactria right. and this kind Bactrian of kingdoms, uh, yeah. really far to the east. But um, kind of my focus is right on their uh, more western provinces. And as you say, the region we're kind of discussing is caught between them. So it's a liminal space there. It, it's like classic yeah, liminal much. space. <laughs> yeah. So there's this, I can't remember what it's actually called. You might've heard it, but this kind of like golden crescent idea um, mm -hmm. in antiquity. So there's lots of uh, things like water sources, like say Egypt, breadbasket, the ancient world. Um, this kind of thin strip of land uh, kind of in the middle, um, in the Levant, uh, is the kind of natural corridor that runs between kind of North Africa and then upwards north along the kind of uh, eastern Mediterranean coast and then off into the kind of ancient Near East. Um, so this is a very contentious region. Um, it's not particularly notable other than being this, as you say, liminal space. So um, we get a series of so-called Syrian wars where it's essentially the uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies fighting 
over control of this region and uh, particularly Cyprus as well. Um, Ptolemy's and they're both Hel- Hellenistic, right? Because mm-hmm. I think one of the things that is big, at least in the Jewish tradition, is the conflict between Hellenism and what's presented as a type of indigenous Judaism. So maybe even before we get into the state um, elements of, of the sort of Maccabean uh era, you could, what does it mean to be Hellenistic in this period? Because that's probably a term a lot of people have heard, but no one might not have the the special knowledge. So just a brief, what, is, what does that actually mean? <laughs> um, so this is really touching on some of kind of real modern up-to-date research, um, which I'm taking, I'm trying to work in this area, myself and some other colleagues. Um, the word Hellenism first appears in Second Maccabees. Um, it's the first kind of recorded um mention of it um so second maccabees is one of these kind of so-called apocrypha if you get um you know a bibles that tend to be extended it's found in there um it's a greek work which is um in the beginning it kind of reports it of itself as a epitome so a condensed version of these larger five books of jason of cyrene um and kind of details a lot of this period so particularly um the confrontations between um, Judea as this kind of small state and the Seleucids and various rulers and their kind of interactions. So what we get in this book is the kind of perhaps contrast between this Hellenism and Judaism. Um, And then scholars, particularly in the 19th century, have made a lot out of talking about clash of cultures. um, What does this mean? Hellenism as a word kind of comes from the Greek uh, for kind of Greekness, let's say. So um, Elena is like the kind of idea of Greece and it's the kind of Greek ways of life, practices, cultures, maybe gods, language, all these other kind of things that Alexander and the successor kingdoms really bring into the region. Um, And immediately there's a lot of problems with this kind of traditional uh, description of it because lots of these things like Greek language, culture and customs have already made their way before Alexander the Great into this region. Um, so there's already some of this kind of naturally going on, like cultural syncretism, let's say, so meshing of things that really the Persians were already doing. Um, and then this idea of the conflict um, really comes about when we, so this is kind of something I've been working on particularly with regards to architecture is that to create this kind of category of Hellenism, we have to choose particular things that we think are like exemplary of that culture. Um, but often they are um, quite arbitrary categories. So in a particular instance, I've worked on um, public bathhouses are one, you know, we know this is like a Roman pastime and a Greek pastime as well. Um, but the earliest known public bathhouse in the Levant is actually built um, either by the Hasmonean family themselves or some of their supporters. Um, so we see early examples of this in the region that are, for all intents and purposes, what we would call Jewish, but they're equally Hellenistic. So I like to collapse this kind of distinction and confrontation between the two. Right. So um, sorry it's, it's more undermine. No, that's perfect. <laughs> that, that, that's so it's a political thing. So why don't we get back then to Derek's uh, initial question? So what is 
uh, Judea, right? That's the, that's the name of the kingdom at the time. What does it look like as the Ptolemies and Seleucids begin to consolidate power in the wake of Alexander? So this is really quite a small region. Um, so if we think of the kind of uh, book of Joshua, for instance, we get this division, the tribal division of the ancient land of Israel. And one of the tribes is Judah, which is kind of uh, the territory and region around uh, Jerusalem. Um, it's not very big. It doesn't reach to the coast, um, kind of reaches up to the Jordan, uh, but not very far north or south. Um, this small kind of province gets expanded, the kind of, depending on which ancient author you consult, the borders are here or there, but generally kind of uh, the region of Samaria to the north, based in uh, Gezerim uh, or Samaste Samaria, one of these two provinces, um, and then to the south, you get these kind of other kingdoms, um, like Idumean kingdom eventually. Um, so it's quite a small region we're talking about initially, um, really based around the authority in the Jerusalem temple. So there's no royal family at this point. Um, there might be some prominent families, such as uh, the Tobiads, which are reported uh, by the kind of Jewish historian Josephus. Um, but generally, it's it's like a a small temple state and the governor um, of this state is really kind of lots of the economy is organized around this. Um, around so, the pre around the temple. Basically, yeah. Really right? around people the come, they pay, they, they have fun outside the temple. They give some of their sacrifices to the priestly class. And so the economic engine is that they're having people from modern day Israel, Palestine, roughly, come and give sacrifices and you have this, like you said, a temple state authority of um, a governor who, who uh, probably, and, and a bunch of priests who are quite powerful. Mm, yeah, very much. Um, so it's not very big. And even when we say like modern Israel, Palestine, we think of territories that um, kind of would go further South and further North. So um, a lot of my research has been on Galilee, for instance, as you know, this, region most famous for the emergence of rabbinic Judaism and Jesus Christ, um, that guy. So this region at the time wouldn't have been part of that state. This gets incorporated later into the Hasmonean kingdom. Um, so at the outset, uh, the Ptolemies operate quite differently to the Seleucids in terms of kind of regional control. Um, they've got a much more developed taxation system, so uh, much lower levels in terms of what they can do and it's essentially resource extraction so um, who controls judea at this time is it the seleucids or the ptolemies the the ptolemies initially right mm -hmm. yeah so um so what year just what year is this precisely about 300 let's say 300, 300 bce the ptolemies are responsible for judea okay yeah joe i wonder um, if uh before we get into the handover to the seleucids and and the ramifications of that i wonder um, if we could stay for a moment on Judean society at this point, and if you could talk a little bit about just kind of basic social structures and points of, um, you know, if they, maybe they're not relevant, you, you know, feel free to tell me that I'm, I'm going up the wrong tree here, but, um, you know, points of kind of discord in society. I'm thinking like linguistically the pressures of, Greek versus Hebrew versus Aramaic. Um, I'm thinking about 
tensions between I I I I um, I think there were tensions between um, you know the the people who came back from the Babylonian captivity and uh, you know people who had never left really I mean hadn't even left necessarily uh, you know when when the kingdom of Israel was done away with the the people who uh, you know there's a sort of line to to the Samaritan people of today um, who you know claim kind of an unbroken um, residency in that region what were what were some of the the sort of social issues of this period? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for getting me back on track because, as you probably noticed, I have a tendency just to go off. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there, uh, yeah, um, the interesting thing at this kind of time is it tends to be a bit of a unknown period in terms of when we think texts are being written and when we kind of can really say that much. Um, we start to get things like material culture, like the kind of earliest coins known being minted kind of for this region, these kind of famous Persian Yehud coins. Um, but in terms of social groups and things, there's not a huge amount. And I could be wrong because this is really immediately before my kind of period of interest. But what, what we have, as you say, um, are these kind of groups who would have remained kind of going right the way back um, before the Babylonian conquest. Um, and then uh, I think these kind of turn up later in some rabbinic texts where we get the Am Ha'aretz or the people of the land, um, and they can be occasionally quite dismissive of them. But um, there seems to be this kind of... A- another issue we have almost is that um, the sources we have for this region um, are often by a elite and their concerns may or may not match that well onto kind of the majority of the population. So their concerns are really uh, kind of reorganizing temple, um, thinking about how to kind of organize. Um, and then we're, we're in a bit of an odd spot. So when in terms of dating texts, which is a quite a um, not necessarily the most interesting question to ask about certain texts, but one which scholars can spend quite a bit of time on, we tend to put things kind of, there's a whole load of texts that we think might have been written um, in the form we know them before the exile. There are some which kind of come after, which have to kind of come after. And then we kind of get a long period um, between uh, kind of Ezra and Nehemiah, the first returnees, the first generation. And then we seem to have a whole spate of writing that happens in the second century. Um, So that there's a lot of, uncertainty at least in my mind about what was really going on but um you kind of mentioned the samaritans as one particular group um yeah they're still kind of plugging away we have things texts like the samaritan pentateuch um and we kind of get um examples of those kind of groups elsewhere so sticking with the samaritans um the island of delos it's this kind of a sacred island, if you like. There's lots of temples and shrines and things there. We have an inscription, I think, from the 3rd century BC, which is, or maybe it's the 2nd century, where the Samaritans have dedicated um, something to that uh, kind of place. So these people are active all over the region. So let's return to Ptolemy and how he governs, or how the Ptolemaic kingdom, rather, governs this this province of Judea, and then the Ptolemy-Seleucid fights, and then the rise of the Maccabees. Great. Um, yeah, so the Ptolemies have a bit more of a yeah resource extraction-based system of taxation. So they have a lot more 
Um, it's, yeah, there's just a lot more personnel as far as I'm aware. And we have some interesting documents like the, the Xenon papyri, which are kind of some late third century BC papyri that are found. And they really go through this guy called Xenon. It's all about uh, him traveling around and, you know, just how much things are worth. And um, it's a wonderful resource for looking into this period. Um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, we have this series of Syrian wars. So by the time, so kind of from... 300 BCE up to about 170 BCE. So there's a 130 year gap. There are six wars, uh, potentially seven if we talk about different campaigns, but um, between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. In this region of Judea. In this region, yeah. They're just going back and forth. They're marching through. Um, I wouldn't say there's a huge amount of action actually in the region, but um, it's contested. Uh, times are tough. So around 200, um, a ruler of the Seleucids called Antiochus III, the Great, um, kind of sets about reasserting his power um, very militarily. And he's the one that brings this region into the Seleucid control. And at this point, lots of the um, kind of previous taxation systems are kind of sped and there's a lot of changes. Um, Antiochus um, is also known for kind of later, um, only eight years later, he gets into a bit of a fight with Rome, who's an, another emerging power in the region in this time. Um, so Rome, uh, we're about 50 years before the duel, I think it's 146 BCE, where in the same year, um, armies of Rome sack both Carthage and Athens. And this is generally kind of held to be a turning point in ancient Mediterranean history because you have these two regional superpowers that have both been defeated by Rome and then kind of Roman hegemony really takes off. Um, but about 50 years before this, um, Rome is kind of asserting itself um, as a power. And what happens is essentially they get into a bit of a fight. The Roman legions handily beat Antiochus III and he's forced to kind of sign this Treaty of Apamea um, in 188 BCE. Um, and he essentially at that point gives up control of a lot of uh, kind of Western Turkey. Um, he agrees to pay a huge indemnity, which actually, if I'm recalling correctly, his son Antiochus IV, who we'll spend a lot of time talking about, <laughs> was still paying off uh, kind of two decades later. Um, so it's this huge war indemnity. Antiochus himself um, Antiochus IV, this is one of the sons. This gets very confusing because, as I say, they're all called Antiochus. Um, but um, Antiochus III has to give over his son um, as a hostage in Rome. Um, so there's, you know, this is kind of fairly common. Um, and this really then sets the tone going forward because Rome increasingly is uh, mentioned or is exerting its kind of power in the region when previously this wasn't something that these Hellenistic kingdoms really had to worry about. Um, so at this point, um, 88, he's made the treaty. Um, they're still in control of kind of Judea. Um, eventually Antiochus the Great dies after his kind of, let's say, less than stellar um, end around kind of this time after losing to the Romans. Uh, one of his sons takes over um, and then 
there's a kind of a swap. So to carry on this peace treaty with Rome, Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV, <laughs> this is just ridiculous, but anyway, um, his son replaces the man who will become Antiochus IV in Rome. So they kind as of a swap hostage. places. Right, yeah. Yeah, as a hostage. Um, Seleucus kind of relatively shortly after dies. Um, I think he's dies got a rule Rome. of something like, yeah, he's got a rule of something 12 years. So he had a few things to do, but I'm less confident what he actually got up to. Um, but essentially this then, he has a son, unfortunately also called Antiochus. Um, and there's a bit of a dynastic kind of um, fight. So Antiochus IV kind of comes back in, asserts control and essentially usurps uh, his nephew's throne. And he is now in power 175 BCE. So he's the head of the Seleucid Empire in 175 BCE. Yeah. After, after you know, Richard III-ing his nephews. Oh, yes. So <laughs> interestingly, on, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of weird games they end up playing. So um, on some of his earliest coins, his nephew and his nephew's mother appear on the coins. And they're kind of minted in Antiochus IV's name, um, but he's there on them. So there's this like transfer for a bit and then uh, they just disappear and the historical record completely forgets about them. So, yeah, they were done away with essentially or vanished or who knows. Um, then Antiochus IV um, takes a title. Um, most of these rulers would take these kind of epithets so their titles, which we often refer to them by, we find them on their coins. Uh, we see other ancient sources referring to them as these titles. Antiochus IV borrows one from his, let's say, cousins, uh, some of the Ptolemies. So I think it's Ptolemy V Epiphanes. So uh, about 15 years later, Antiochus takes as his title one of them, Epiphanes. In 160 BCE, roughly. Uh, this is like 175 is kind oh, of so around. Yeah, this okay. is towards the beginning. So same time, same time. Okay, 175. Same time. BCE. So, um, yeah, Epiphany is essentially is like a um, manifestation of the divine. Um, lots of them have these kind of titles. Um, there's a lot of ones which are, you know, good father. Um, Philopater is another common one, but Epiphanes is kind of, in, in the Seleucid family, this is the first time anyone's used that. And on his coins, he starts to use symbols which are connected with kind of divinity. So he'll have a portrait and then above his head um, are some stars or something. And then on the reverse of this coin, um, they'll have a seated Zeus, which is quite a common figure. And in Zeus's palm is the goddess Nike, uh, goddess of victory. And usually uh, on some of the predecessor coins, so some of Seleucus' uh, coins, maybe some of the earlier ones, um, uh, Nike is, is offering Zeus this kind of laurel wreath crown for victory. But on the Antiochus fourth coins, she's actually facing away from Zeus, so almost crowning Antiochus on the other side. So we get a lot of these kind of things. So um, a big thing as we'll come on to, has been made of Antiochus' persecution of the Judeans and of the Jews. And because of his, let's say, claims to divinity, um, this then becomes kind of the first uh, religious persecution that we really talk of in this time. 
Why is he doing that? Is he a religious guy? Um, does he think that this is going to increase his, you know, religious authority over the new challenger Rome against the Ptolemies, who his uh, kingdom has been fighting for over a century? What is the reason that he does this? Do we know, or is there just essentially lack of sources? <laughs> oh, so yeah, this this is such an interesting question, and it kind of gets into what do we make of what does religious mean in the ancient world? Right, and right. Is there even a thing? Yeah. yeah, so... Um, I think modern scholarship's opinion on him now is more that he's quite a savvy political operator. And a lot of what he does is about establishing legitimacy. Um, so it's kind of appearing like um, lots of the ancient uh, Mesopotamian kings and other ancient Near Eastern uh, imperial powers kind of had this role of like God King. So this, you know, me mediating figure. Um, so it, it might be raising some of that. Um, and I'll, I've got a source here. So um, there's a historian called Polybius. Friend of the pod. Yeah. Oh, very good. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, lots of his work is lost, um, but he's we've got some preserved fragments of him. And this is what he writes about. So the context for this is he actually um, was a member of a Greek league of city-states who went to war against Antiochus. So his opinion of him uh, might be slightly reflected in what he writes because of their kind of enmity. But he writes here, Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, gained the name Epimanes by his conduct. So this is a little play on words. Epimanes is the madman. So he's making a little bit of a pun there. Uh, Polybius tells us of him that escaping from his attendance at court, would often be seen wandering about in all parts of the city with one or two companions, who's found at the silversmiths and the goldsmiths workshop, holding forth at length and discussing technical matters with the moulders and other craftsmen. He also condescended to converse with any common people he met and used to drink in the company of the meanest foreign visitors to Antioch. And then it goes on and on about all his mad conduct. So part of this report, and also that comes across in a kind of some Jewish works as well, I'm thinking of uh, the book of Daniel, books in the Maccabees, we get this impression where the only historical sources we have about him um, that really go into any detail whatsoever are all by his enemies. Right. right. Um, so part of this feeds into, uh, did he really believe himself as a divine king, which is one of the thing, hence he's a madman, hence his kind of religious persecution is like this kind of mad drive. Um, but a lot of this is kind of very tricky to sift. Um, and why he actually does this um, is kind of unknown. And we're only left with uh, all these different presentations of his behavior that really are by people uh, quite justly are not friendly with him. So what does he do with Judea? Um, what, what is, let's get into the Hanukkah story. First of all, who the hell were the Maccabees? Um, mm -hmm. what is, what is their, you know, that they're the, known as the Hasmoneans. Maybe you could explain a little bit, um, 
what's happening in Judea. I think we have a good sense of the geopolitics, who Antiochus was, what his duty is. He's trying to legitimize himself. He's trying to, you know, associate himself with the divine, and this is going to introduce some problems for the local Jews. So who were the, uh, well, first of all, is it is it fair to call them Jews? You know, this is also, I think, an interesting debate that we could talk about, Israelites versus Jews, Judeans versus Jews. Uh, and so who were these people? What did, what did they believe? You know, um, what is their relationship to the larger Near Eastern world of which they were part? Um, yeah, again, this is all kinds of really interesting topics that are related into this question. So they come on the scene. So the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans come on the scene because involved in some of these Syrian wars, Antiochus IV um, has a run-in with the Jerusalem temple, sacks it, takes all the kind of treasure inside, all these kind of offerings and dedications, and then takes off, but then seems to later have this policy whereby he bans certain, let's say, Jewish practices. And the Maccabees, or the Hasmoneans, are one of the groups that resists this kind of mandated change of customs, religious observations. So let's talk about the, the kind of question of terminology. So Jews, Judeans, Israelites, all these other kind of Hebrews, all these other terms that throw in. The issue we have really is in English. We have two major viable translations for the term eudaios, which is a Greek term. Um, one of these can be Judean and the other is Jewish. And there's a lot of scholarship around the emergence of Judaism and what exactly we're talking about. Um, so when we say that, do we mean an identity that isn't tied to a locality? So we might have you know, Jews in Alexandria or in Rome or all over the place? Are we talking about Jews who observe certain cultural customs? One of the main ones would be, let's say, like a pilgrimage to the Jerusalem temple. Maybe this involves tithing um, for Jewish men. This may involve circumcision. That might be something we're talking about. So it's kind of about practice. Um, another one might be, are they observing you know, the law of Moses, however narrowly or broadly that's defined, um, or oral traditions. So we have lots and lots of potential for this. And I think at this time, in my own work, I use Jewish. I think this is a appropriate term. Um, I think the there are issues with not using it at this period, um, one of which um, there's a scholar called Adele Reinhardt's. Um, her suggestion is that if we do not translate uh, this term as Jewish in this period, then we're kind of erasing Jewish presence from the past. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I tend to think that that's a valuable thing to maintain. Another thing we tend to have is we kind of as scholars and historians, we have a limited window on the different ways ancient people um, self-identified. So we're usually confined to literate um, scribes, literate elites. Um, and we also tend to, you know, they say history is written by the victors. Well, groups which don't survive kind of different organisations, sects, factions, whatever you want to call them, are less able to assert their own self-understanding. So two examples. One would be um, there is a temple to the Jewish god in Leontopolis in Egypt. 
and they seem kind of fairly happy sacrificing at their temple. That's fine. So that might not conform to one criteria we might have to determine what ancient Judaism looked like, which would be temple observance in Jerusalem. Right. And we also have a group of Jewish mercenaries at Elephantine, which is another kind of region in Egypt. Yeah. And uh, what they're up to is completely different. Like they don't seem to have uh, any of the same stuff that we would normally assume. Um, So there's a lot of diversity. And I think any definition has to be open to, um, you know, if we were able to interview any ancient (laughs) person and they said, well, I'm Jewish, um, it has to be flexible enough to accommodate for that. Right. Um, and this gets into questions about, is it appropriate to use a term like religion in this totally different context from what we have today? So what we have then is the Hasmoneans are organized around the Jerusalem temple, the sort of cultic center, uh, and, and they have a very famous patriarch, and then they have Judah uh, Maccabees. So maybe you mm-hmm. could talk a little bit about the literal yeah. family, who they appear to actually be. So they are kind of called the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans. So the Hasmoneans comes from this kind of unknown ancestor in the family, Asmoneos or something like that. But the first one we're introduced to is Matthias, who is this kind of patriarch. He's got a number of sons who we meet. I think there are five. Um, and they're a family located in Modain. Um, I think it's still called that. Um, I'm not sure, as in, in the modern world. Um, but it's kind of a small town in Judea. Um, the story goes, and this is reported by um, the book of First Maccabees, um, and we can talk a little bit about the relation of these sources to the Hasmonean family um, later, if you like. But um, a Seleucid official comes to the town and he demands that the Jewish men there sacrifice a pig, uh, which is not kosher, um, not permitted at all. And Matthias will not do this. He won't do this. But one other Jewish man steps forward and is ready to do it. So the kind of first Maccabees has this, uh, I could find the exact source, but um, you could quite easily find it. He is filled with zeal, uh, recalling this kind of uh, Phineas in in the Pentateuch. And he kills this man. I think they kill the Seleucid official. And then he yells for everyone to come with him if they want to resist, and they run off into the hills, him and his sons, and presumably loads of supporters. This is in response to Seleucid, one, sacking the temple, and then two, basically in trying to impose some form of what they termed Hellenism in mm-hmm. this Ju- Judean area. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't get rid of the temple. I mean, there's no plans right now to destroy the temple. So what is Sel- mm-hmm. Seleu- the Seleucid, um, what is Antiochus trying to do is he just trying to basically see some form of public obeisance you know like you guys do your temple thing but when you're in public you know have the statues of zeus um is that what he's trying to do and then why would matthias find this so offensive you know this is i think really interesting i think joe when you're talking about this maybe we could get in a little bit to the uh the sort of politicking around the the high priesthood and and this antiochus's kind of involvement in that process, because uh, my understanding is that was part of the, the grievance here was, was, you know, him kind of uh, taking bribes basically for, mm-hmm. to, uh, to pre- you know, preference one candidate over another. Oh yeah. So as I kind of mentioned before, um, Antiochus is still paying off some of this indemnity to Rome. Uh, so he wants money. 
he was thwarted by Rome um, to kind of conquer uh, Egypt more directly. There's actually quite another nice story by Polybius uh, where a Roman consul is delivering this kind of message from the Senate. He presents it to Antiochus and it tells him to immediately withdraw and uh, from the city and kind of draws a line. And Antiochus says, oh, I have to consult with my advisors, my friends, with this other kind of thing. So the Roman consul draws a, line, a circle around him in the sand and says, don't step outside of it without an answer. So he gives him an answer and says, yes, he'll withdraw. So on the way back from that, this kind of uh, there's a bit of a question over whether it is humiliating as it's presented by Polybius, but it's not great. Um, <laughs> he sacks the Jerusalem temple, and this is around 169, maybe 168 BCE. And what he does before this, there's a kind of a turnover of high priests. So what seems to have been happening in the background is that the high priests, which is a hereditary position, um, so it kind of goes down the family chain, seem to have been conferred by the Seleucid king for a while now. So Antiochus III seems to have granted this man called Anias some kind of acceptance of it. So there is a theory that perhaps in the Seleucid court, their understanding of this and how they may have operated elsewhere is that these kind of high priests, these local officials, rule kind of by virtue of bribing them essentially or, or paying for that similar to how uh, kind of taxation systems work so you have a tax collector who pays for the privilege of collecting tax in a given reason and then they have to make all that back so they're paying to have the position so this seems to be something that perhaps preceded what then happens and we get another high priest who is called jason and he uh, the story goes he actually does just bribe antiochus the fourth for uh, control of the temple he gets it and he's associated with this group called the hellenizers so allegedly he sets up a gymnasium in jerusalem uh, which is meant to be you know the height of greek culture there's some other really curious things that are reported in the second maccabees like there's this reference to the greek hats so they're wearing greek hats and a friend of mine has recently argued that this is um, perhaps alluded to another thing we have, I think, in First Maccabees, which talks about prominent Jews cover up the marks of circumcision. Now, this there's a lot of technicality that gets into this, um, but uh, she has argued that this reference to wearing the Greek hat is actually just like a kind of a wink-wink. That's what they're doing. They're covering up the marks of circumcision. Um, so Jason's kind of overseeing this in Jerusalem. People seem to be throwing off what some... Jews consider to be, uh, well, this is what we do. This is who we are. And the contrast is basically set between some of the Jews seem to want to embrace more. And this is likely driven by, at least in part, political ambition, because uh, you get further, you you know, you become friends with the king, you get more power, uh, you converse and you understand the cultural kind of context. So maybe going back a bit to Polybius um, chastising Antiochus IV of the madman because of all these things he was doing. Well, a lot of these things seem to be um, what the Romans would consider kind of normal practice. Right, normal politics, yeah. yeah Meeting so with people, just, getting to know people, yeah. Yeah, um, so a little bit of that's going on. And then we get another group and another high priest who kind of buys it back off. Um, and I should say that Anias um, is part of a long line of priests, so he's kind of inherited it. Jason 
buys it. He's got no business, according to most people, being the high priest. And another man called Menelaus buys even further. But all this is going on in Jerusalem. Um, and um, as an outsider to this kind of, let's say, small province politicking, um, Antiochus is probably having uh, one group tell him that this is what needs to happen. Um, so if, you know, to sort this out, because there's like a little revolt, Jerusalem doesn't open its gates when Antiochus comes back, which perhaps might be a reason why he sacked the temple. But again, we don't know. It's very partisan sources. So Antiochus um, might be, because as, as a Seleucid king, we don't really see much of their interactions with the Jews before. So how does he know that uh, banning circumcision and making them eat pork or sacrifice pork is a big deal for them? Because these aren't necessarily things that would occur to the Seleucid as that's a real issue. So there is a thought that maybe some of these like Hellenizers, as they're called in Second Maccabees, are suggesting, well, this is what needs to happen if you want to bring people around. Um, they have a direct line, maybe, to him that that uh, basically say you you have to break these taboos, and that will increase your power, and mm-hmm. that will also increase our power as Hellenizers. Uh, basically, allowing someone like Jason to um, take over in some way a a a person who has a long line of priestly ambition. So mm-hmm. it's in some sense an an, uh, an upstart versus a uh, you know a fail son. Mm. Yeah. So, and and all this is kind of going on, and then. Um, so th- this is kind of the background. And then Antiochus, there's a number of references to it. Um, it crops up uh, various places in the book of Daniel, um, kind of it's alluded to. So um, throughout kind of Daniel 7 to 12, lots of these visions, um, you can read kind of historical parallels up to a point, And then we think that actually helps us date it. Um, but anyway, so we get things like the abomination of desolation, which is a really great phrase that a lot of people really don't know what it means. Um, we have this same kind of phrase is in Maccabees. We also get it in, um, I think, the kind of mini apocalypse in some of the synoptic gospels. So Jesus talks about, you know, abomination standing in the temple. And some scholars have argued that he essentially sets up like a statue and an altar to Zeus. Um, here, because he's a big proponent of Zeus, Zeus is kind of like his uh, uh, patron god, let's say. And so uh, he sets it up just to be clear. The, the the claim is that perhaps Antiochus IV set up a statue of Zeus in the temple proper, in the mm-hmm. right by the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, like yeah. inside. Okay, so that's that's a pretty big that's deal. That's a pretty big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. Um, so... But this is one potential thing. Another thing is that um, he also establishes this fortress uh, in Jerusalem that is said to overlook the temple and garrison it with uh, kind of Syrian mercenaries and soldiers. So essentially like a local military base to uh, essentially prevent them from locking the gates to him again and causing any strife. And there is some spec that maybe this uh, like altar, it's not even a full statue, but maybe it's an altar is for them. Personally, I don't really know, because again, we really get into a lot of weeds with, um, so the, the famous Roman emperor Caligula, or Gaius, um, in around the 40 CE, he has a plan 
to set up a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple. And this kicks off a load of problems and kind of, um, yeah, flare-ups in Judea. Um, and eventually uh, he's kind of talked out of it by Agrippa, one of Herod's sons, um, who's a friend of his. Um, but he, he essentially kind of talks him around to it. And then kind of shortly after Caligula is uh, assassinated. So they don't have to worry about that. But some of this that he is trying to put a statue inside the temple may have bled over into later readings of this. So things like the Gospels, which have it. Um, Jerome has a commentary in the book of Daniel where he argues against Porphyry, and this seems to have bled over there. So I don't know whether he actually put a statue to Zeus or whether he was that bothered. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But whatever he was up to, it was definitely um, an affront. There was definitely... Um, force used to kind of get people on side so returning to the Hasmoneans they resist this um and kind of Matthias this patriarch kicks it off he dies fairly shortly afterwards and then he's replaced in command of this kind of rebel band almost by uh Judah Maccabee Maccabee is his nickname which means the hammer which is quite a good nickname I like that um <laughs> And then him and his brothers, so um, uh, he is kind of on the scene for a few years, eventually he's killed in battle. There are also reports of his brothers. Uh, Eleazar is a great one, another brother. They're terrified by the Seleucid elephants uh, who are kind of uh, assaulting them, and he kind of runs under it with a spear and kills it, but it collapses on him and kills him. So this is martyrdom story of Eleazar. So Joe, just one question. I, I want to talk a little bit about the military aspect of this because they're famously i think referred to as gorillas you know this is uh so what what is what do we know about how battles were actually fought could you maybe describe what would an engagement between antiochus the force forces and the maccabees who are sort of hiding in the hills of judea look like what what do we know about that it's a really good question and i'm not sure i'm fully equipped to answer yet but my next project is going to look more into this. Um, essentially, the region is kind of hill country, so quite high altitudes, not a lot of plains. The kind of Seleucids, as far as I'm aware, are still fighting um, using phalanx or at least some kind of form. So the phalanx is this kind of unit where you get a whole load of men and they're kind of holding shields and big long spears and they form like a kind of a hedgehog and this stops. They're really good on level ground against other phalanxes, but maybe not so good uh, fighting in hill territory with uh, perhaps guerrilla warfare. But what seems to be happening are that the Maccabees are striking unexpectedly and they're just kind of tearing up and around the country. Now, there there is a bit of time where essentially what seems to happen is Antiochus IV doesn't seem very concerned about them. So whether they're a big... Threat, whether they're essentially, maybe you could just call it like bandits are going around, might be one way of kind of portraying it. But he doesn't seem very concerned and doesn't really do much other than send some subordinates to go off and do it. And then in 165, so this is within a couple of years of the kind of Maccabees uh, taking off, um, he goes on an anabasis, which is this kind of tour of uh, his empire. And I think in 164, um, he actually gets into problems sacking another temple where the devotees of this temple, um, can't remember where, but they actually kill him. So that's the end of Antiochus. 
Afterwards, there is a bit of a problem because his young son, Antiochus V, is kind of a boy and has some advisors. And then we get into a real period of this is just complete decline. So the Seleucid Empire starts to disintegrate. There are lots of local rebellions popping up here, there and everywhere. Some of them get very successful, like the Parthians a bit later are one of the major ones who just, they are taken over. Um, and the Hasmonean kingdom is, I would read it as another one. So it's another one of these kind of smaller nation states that arise out of like the carcass of this big empire that really infighting essentially just stopped all of their kind of control. So, Joe, one question. So the, the Hasmoneans are this guerrilla force against uh, Antiochus. Antiochus dies. There's uh, political chaos because he has like a, essentially a boy son, a boy king who's not powerful. The empire was already in decline, having lost to Rome with uh, Antiochus's the fourth father, Antiochus the Great slash Antiochus the Third. Um, so, who is ruling in Jerusalem at this at this point when Antiochus dies and his son is there? Because so we have the Hasmonean force. Uh, and then we have the sort of Jason Hellenizers in Jerusalem. Who's governing the, the actual temple? I, I just want to add to that. This touches on a question that I was going to ask, which you've alluded to in saying, you know, f- at least in this early stage, the Maccabean uprising really did, doesn't seem to have been on Antiochus's radar in a, in a major way. He had bigger uh, fish to fry, as it were. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how much of this, which is portrayed as this revolution against a great, you know, powerful kingdom, uh, how much of it should, should we characterize in that way versus something more local, like based on, you know, sort of more local conflicts between, you know, the, the sort of Seleucid clients within the Jewish community and the, the Maccabees? You know, how do you characterize, I guess, the, this conflict is what I'm asking. Mm. Um, so I will answer the second question first and you're going to have to remind me of the first one. So, um, so yeah, I think this is much more local level. We actually have some reputed letters from Antiochus, uh, I think the fifth, there might be one from Antiochus the fourth, which are preserved in second Maccabees. And I think also in the works of Josephus and a lot of scholars do think that these are actually authentic. And what seems to be happening is there is a local kind of council in Jerusalem. Um, and Jason has been replaced by this point by another high priest called Menelaus. And there is this garrison in Jerusalem in the, the kind of Acre fortress. And they seem to hold And out. Menelaus is a Hellenizer, is part yeah, of the another same one, contingent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, again, all these, all these of, Greek names are kind of a giveaway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> again, this tends to be kind of the split. But then this is also the interesting thing because the Hasmoneans all have Greek names as well. <laughs> so we're kind of like, uh, they all start um, using Greek names from the, really the second generation. So in Jerusalem, that's kind of going away and the war essentially is kind of settled when I think they sue for peace around 160 or something like that. And who sues for peace? The Jews sue for peace? No, I think Antiochus V. I might be completely butchering this, but as far as I remember, this is the kind of state of play. Um, And then um, the kind of prominent first ruler for about the first decade, I could again check the dates, um, is one of the other kind of brothers of Judah um, called Jonathan. Um, And then this is really when we see, I think, that a lot of the kind of Judaism versus Hellenism thing is really overblown um, because kind of from this point, these prominent uh, high priests, so really this begins with Judah becoming high priest 
again, they're a priestly family, but they're not the high priest family. So they don't actually have this kind of precedent to take it. But the rededication of the temple, now there's a conflict here because in 1st Maccabees, this takes place before Antiochus IV has died. And in 2nd Maccabees, I think it takes place after. We don't really know which, I think. Um, but they become the prominent priestly family, the high priest family, and kind of de facto power in the region. And then quite soon after that, they start to become politically involved with both the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So they become like what's known as friends of the king. And there's a bit of intrigue. Um, if I remember correctly, Jonathan is kind of lured to a royal wedding uh, by some of the Ptolemies and he's assassinated. Uh, his brother Simon becomes the high priest. Jonathan being the head priest from the Maccabee family, uh, which yeah. is now nominally independent be between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Yeah, nominally independent, but they become like local satraps, if you like. So they're local subordinate governors. But it's really because in the, in the background to all this, um, there are kind of two, well, even three warring kind of claims to the Seleucid throne. So you've got Antiochus the Fourth's kind of, let's say, true heirs. And then you have another guy in the 150s called Alexander Ballas, who claims to be an illegitimate son of Antiochus the Fourth, And they have a civil war. And then I think some of the sons of uh, Seleucus IV or someone else, like there's a load of Demetrius has come back. And just power is turning over and over uh, in Antioch. So, And so this, just to be clear, this is in the 150s and early 140s BCE uh, because the, in, the independent, the formal independence comes in 142. Yeah, so that's, that's sometimes... This is sort of like the lead up. Very much. And what happens is that the... As the prominent family in the region, the Hasmoneans are kind of um, co-opted into some of that. So they're solicited by both sides of this Seleucid civil war to, oh, come and help us and fight against them. And, you know, there's questions about who they trust and who they go for. But essentially, they just become part of this larger fight that's going on. So just to be clear, because this is confusing, there's a it civil war within the disintegrating Seleucid Empire at the same time that there's another sovereign authority, the Ptolemaic Empire, that has been fighting with the Seleucids for a century. And Judea yeah. is sort of caught between this and they, you know, they take various sides at various points and they're dealing with all these various people as the Seleucid Empire undergoes a civil war and as the Ptolemaic Empire continues to challenge the Seleucids on essentially their southwest border. Yeah, perfect. That's very nicely put. So um, around, I think, the mid-130s, we have Antiochus VII, who is like the last best hope of Seleucid hegemony, uh, kind of in the ancient Near East, and um, he dies uh, eventually. But during this time, he kind of resubjugates Jerusalem, mints the first coins to be minted in Jerusalem in this period, and then this crosses over with kind of the beginning of real Hasmonean independence. Um, so after he's off the scene, we have John Hyrcanus. So he's taken this Greek name. He's like, I think he's Simon's son. So he's the first of this generation um, after the ones who were fighting uh, kind of in the rebellion against Antiochus. So he's the one who has state power. He's not a, a, a rebel in the hills. He has yeah. a, someone whose family won the rebel. He, he's the, you know, the, the second generation of yeah. leader. Um, so we, we're told in first Maccabees that Simon, um, kind of the forebear was granted the right to mint coins. 
Um, we don't have any coins of Simon, but we do have coins of John Herkinus, and they uh, copy but make some really interesting iconographic changes from Antiochus VII's coins that were minted in Jerusalem. And then really, he's still high priest. Um, he's kind of, I think he uses head of the council of the Judeans on his coins. Um, and then he is a long, long reign, uh, reign like op- occupying the high priesthood. Then his son, Aristobulus, um, becomes high priest. And Josephus says that he also took the title of, high- of king. He dies in a year. <laughs> and then his younger brother rules for a quarter of a century. So it's about 103 to 76 CE, uh, BC. Sorry. So this is the first genuinely independent Jewish kingdom, right? For the first time in history, really. Like somewhere between the 140s and 130s, it becomes this independent thing that actually has a sovereign authority. Mm-hmm. So um, this is like generally referred to, especially after the founding of the state of Israel, as sort of the first moment of Jew and Jewish nationhood. What would you say about that claim about Jewish mm. nationhood, because I'm interested in sort of the emergent identity between uh, Jewish antiquity and the sense of national mm. identity, you know, which mm. may be a bit of an anachronism to refer to something in the, the CE, BCE period as a nationhood. But what's your take on that whole question? And, and what does this kingdom look like? Mm. So, um, yeah, I, Scholars such as David Goodblatt do use this as the kind of formative period of ancient Jewish nationalism title of his book. Um, and you're right, there, there's kind of questions over how we use this term, and I think we have to be quite careful with it. Um, but running up to this period, so let's say between uh, 150 and 100, um, additional regions start to be brought into Judea. So we've got Judea as this kind of really small states centered in Jerusalem, and then other regions start being added onto it. So we get... uh, Through conquest? Yeah, through conquest, through agreement um, with the Seleucids as well. So there's this kind of agreement in 1st Maccabees, I think 1st Maccabees 15, um, and we get this, um, okay, you know, stop fighting with us and we'll grant you control over, uh, I think it's these port towns, Joppa is one of them, and parts of Samaria, and gradually this kingdom grows and it is through conquest. So um, Idumea to the south is conquered. So we then also start to get reports of um, the Hasmoneans who are forcibly circumcising the people they encounter. Um, and this is sometimes taken to be like, this is them creating a form of Jewish identity that is shared in the whole region. There are some problems with this because we also think that um, some of these peoples who they come into contact with were already practicing circumcision. So it's kind of this weird um, aside thing, but um, it's a bit unclear. But generally they they start to expand. Um, they conquer territory right away on the Mediterranean coast beyond the Georgian on the other side in this territory called Perea. Uh, to the south in Edomia, and then in the north, this is around 100, um, they take, well, before then they take Samaria. In the mid-110s, the Samaritan temple at Gerizim is destroyed by John Hyrcanus. At this time, he's also destroying other kind of cultic centres, um, such as a sacred grove that's in Scythopolis or Bet-Shean, um, 
Are so these they, cultic centers to the Jewish God or are these no. cultic centers to other gods? These are like, uh, it could be the Baal or something. Yeah, so Gerizim is tricky because it is also kind of to the Jewish God as well, but it's a competing cultural center and there's, you know, this is kind of, uh, there has been some enmity and then it goes on beyond this. Um, so Joe, I want to pause on this for yep. one second. I want to talk about what is John Herkinus like a, a military genius? Is he are his tactics particularly innovative? How is he able to conquer and expand in such a short amount of time? And then related to that, so the question one, military, and question two, what does imperialism actually look like? Is this a form of imperialism? Uh, how would you characterize it? And then what are the sorts of relationships being forged? Do they have to pay money? Is it a sort of a cultural thing? Is he doing an Antiochus the Fourth to the people of, of uh, surrounding Judea? Maybe you could characterize that. So again, mm. military, and then is this imperialism? Military. I think this is a tricky question. We know that they were using mercenaries. Um, and generally just buying a mercenary force seems to have got their way and it's slow over time and they're conquering often with kind of political support of others. So again, these other Seleucids who they're kind of siding with temporarily, um, that they, they've kind of got some, yeah, okay, you can do that, but they're taking kind of territories with, let's say, smaller local powers than them and just gradually growing bigger and bigger, um, in terms of imperialism, this is a really tricky question. And I, th I think we're fairly certain that throughout the Hasmonean kingdom, the territory that they are ruling over is Judea, um, not Israel. They don't kind of use this as a term of like, um, some scholars have understood certain parts of First Maccabees um, which just as an aside is thought also to be this kind of, um, annal of the Royal court. So it, it can func we understand it as kind of almost propaganda on behalf of the Hasmoneans. Um, so some scholars have read this to understand that, um, the Hasmoneans were self-consciously reconquering, uh, kind of David's kingdom, quote unquote, because lots of the right. territorial overlap, um, is quite similar. It's different. It's quite similar. I think that this perhaps is overstated and on the basis of kind of how they refer to themselves, um, they're kind of they're not really systematic policies of conquest and it mostly seems to be down to kind of certain episodes and the destruction of other cultic centres, as I've mentioned, seems to accompany where those cities even um, resisted, you know, either paying tax or something. Um, so it's really unclear. And again, like when we get into this period, really after 120, we have Josephus as a source who's writing in the late first century CE and much later stuff. That's it. Because the, the books of the Maccabees stop really after the first generation. Um, so we're left with really one detailed source and he's sometimes contradictory between kind of, I say one source. So he's got two books that kind of cover it, one in more detail. Um, they're slightly contradictory, so it's a bit uncertain. And in terms of like, what is their ideology almost of power? Um, I think, and the easiest one to talk about this is um, Alexander Junaeus, who's this kind of king who rules. Uh, he is like a full-on king. We know he was minting coins in his name as king in Greek. So he'd be high priest um, and head of the Council of Jews in uh, Hebrew on one side of the coin and then the other side of the coin he'd be 
King Alexander. Um, and what year is this? The, he assumes power in 103 BCE. And he oh, dies. So this is post John Hercanus. Yeah, this is post John. He's one of John Hercanus's sons. wasn't liked by him, but anyway, um, he dies in seventy six. So he's got a quarter of a century. He's reigning, um, and gives us kind of a lot we can say. And what he seems to really be doing is just emulating other Hellenistic kind of small kings who are um, seizing power through military ends, hiring mercenaries, extending their personal prestige and control um and he's doing exactly the same as the rest of them in the region um he's just very successful um yeah so i i don't i don't know because personally and i think you two could probably tell me something about this i almost struggle with how to understand empire as opposed to kingdom and really what is going on in terms of how those kind of types of polity might be organized yeah, I think it's in my perspective, it relates to um, sovereignty, you know, like what what elements of sovereignty do the quote unquote conquered populations have and what elements of sovereignty don't they have economic, political, cultural. And, and then I think ultimately it, it's sort of like a lot of people could look at the same object and have different perspectives. And it, it's, all, of course, related to one's own ideology. So we have this kingdom r- roughly, you know, the, the late first century uh, BCE. And so how long do, does the, the Hasmonean kingdom last? And what, you know, ends up, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah. Um, so I'll do a very quick rundown of what happens after Alexander Gineas. Um, His wife, Alexandra Salome, um, then takes power as queen um, and rules for nine years. There's some question over whether she's the wife of um, Aristobulus, so this kind of guy who only lasted a year. I don't think she was. I've published on this somewhere. Um, but I think they're two different people. They just This family tends to have a lot of the same names. She has two sons. Uh, the eldest she makes um, high priest. This is another Hyrcanus. Uh, and the other, another Aristobulus, uh, isn't very happy about it. She seems to include him in some of her kind of political decisions. He doesn't seem to be, you know, completely cast out. Um, but at the end of her reign, so there's some question because Josephus presents it one way, but who knows what happened. The younger brother seems to get very upset with his lot in life that he isn't high priest, that he isn't king, goes on a rebellion and then within like a week he's captured you know something like reported to have captured something like 20 fortresses and then his mother dies um so immediately after her have death, a broken heart oh yeah maybe i mean she was <laughs> she was also i think 76 or something when she died okay so she was very old yeah, yeah um she had a long life and i think more should be done uh in scholarship of alexandra salome um but immediately we have a civil war between these two brothers And they start to appeal to Rome and the Parthians to kind of decide. And this is happening in, um, oh, is it 66? So about 66 BCE. Now in 63 BCE, on the cusp of this, Pompey the Great, this kind of Roman general, uh, more or less conquers the whole of kind of uh, Asia Minor, the Levant, uh, kind of Egypt, and brings like this entire region completely or much more under Rome control. Um, one of the brothers backs, um, or 
It kind of seeks the backing of the Parthians. The other seeks the backing of Pompey. Or they, I think they both go to him at some point and he decides, okay, you'll be the one who makes him high priest and kind of still king. But, so this is Aristobulus. He decides yeah, in Aristobulus's favor? I think so. Um, yeah, by all reports, Hyrcanus wasn't a very inspiring man. Um, but anyway, um, and Aristobulus seems to have had some military exploits before this as well. So um, maybe Pompey liked him for that. But essentially the matter settled um, and they really fall from prominence. They retain the high priesthood and another family, the Herodians, kind of is on the ascendancy. So a man called Antipater, who is an Idumean, um, one of these conquered kind of peoples um, brought into the Hasmonean state, um, becomes you know, a celebrated general, warlord, commander, whatever you want to call him. Um, and they become kind of quite prominent. His son, Herod, who will go on to become Herod the Great in the 40s, is establishing himself in his own right as a, a savvy uh, political leader and military leader. And um, in uh, one forty uh, in forty two BC, I think around this time, um, kind of the latter third of the first century BC, the last Hasmonean uh, to kind of have any stab at power, um, Antigonus Matthias um, takes the high priesthood, takes the kingship with the backing of Parthia, and kind of boots the Herodians out. Um, so. Herod is friend of Mark Antony and kind of ends up going back and taking names. Um, but <laughs> Antigonus is interesting because he mints some coins and all of the symbols on his coins are connected to the temple. So he's got the showbread t- uh, table on it. He has one of the earliest depictions we know of the menorah on it. Um, really getting into the Hanukkah thing, which maybe uh, I'll, I'll just have a little aside here, um, kind of because we're meant to be talking about Hanukkah and I've just danced all around it um no that's perfect no let's talk about that yeah so if i'm recalling correctly his menorah is a seven branch menorah so we get in antiquity we get seven and nine branch menorahs variations of thereof um i think the earlier ones mostly a seven i could be completely wrong the arch of titus is probably the best known one um, it's arch in Rome. You can go see it. And it's the Romans with all the spoils from the temple and the menorah is kind of very prominent. Um, there are a few depictions of it before this time. Um, one of them is on these coins. Um, and I had a thought the other day that was if the Hasmoneans were linked with Hanukkah majorly as a celebration, then why do they not? use this symbol that eventually becomes associated with it um, earlier than this. Um, and I don't really have an answer, but it was just a, a thought I had um, because Hanukkah becomes much more of a thing and we have all these other kind of um, narratives about it that emerge later in rabbinic Judaism. The Hasmoneans are remembered fondly, but kind of in the time period contemporary with them, there's not a lot about it. Um, but anyway, that's just a little aside. So um, Antigonus, Matthias, uh, Herod comes back. He's done. Herod marries one of the, I think, Antigonus's sister or his cousin. And then the Hasmonean family is completely subsumed into Herod's family. And then they're done. And we, we kind of get, there, there might be some kind of in the, around Herod's death and uh, slightly afterwards. So this is really the turn of the millennium. 
Um, there are some kind of figures in Galilee who emerge, like Hezekiah, who's called a bandit. Um, a scholar has suggested that they may be kind of remnants of Hasmonean family or some other figures tied to it. Josephus also seems to indicate that he might be distantly linked. But, um, and that's, that, that's probably also something people would have done in the ancient world to give them legitimacy yeah. <laughs> and authority. So would it be fair to say that yeah. with Herod's ascension, the era of Jewish independence comes to an end, that they're basically just a vassal state of Rome? Uh, it's difficult because Herod's almost the most impressive of them all. Um, and so in some way, when Pompey shows up, it's kind of the end. Um, but in another, it kind of continues and the Romans are very haphazard. Um, so the Senate's always changing its mind about what it's going to do. So, um, in 50 BCE, they kind of reconfigure under this, um, governor called Gabinius. Um, and he just says, okay, we're going to have five centers in what was the Hasmonean kingdom. And these are going to be the administrative centers. One is in Jerusalem. One is in, um, Sepphoris, which is in Galilee. And I can't remember the others. Um, and that seems to last maybe a decade and then it's gone. Um, so they seem to be reconfiguring. Herod is king of all of it, um, but not high priests. There still seems to be this other, you know, then I lose track of who the high priests are. They seem to change <laughs> quite a lot. Um, then his sons have Herod's kingdom divided amongst them. Um, and this kind of goes on. It's swapped back and forth under different Roman, uh, when they really become kind of the princess or the emperors as we mostly know them, um, they seem to just change. So Claudius, for instance, wants to systematize a lot of things. So there seems to be some reforms over, okay, how do we do local governance? The Roman governors in Judea are a thing, but then there's also a Herodian king in Galilee for 40 years. So it's very inconsistent. Um, very inconsistent and very and very complicated. Yeah, and then ultimately we get up to um, the kind of first Jewish war against Rome. Um, and then after that, everything changes. But that that's the kind of state of it. So it's kind of, there is a really limited window of kind of what we might call, you know, political independence. But then even in this time, there's still kind of nominal treaties with all kinds of people, like whether that's the Romans. Right. Earlier on, there's things with the Spartans. They're functioning in relation to other Hellenistic powers. Um, but they're, they're not kind of subordinate in the same way to a greater a polity under particularly these kind of... I've uh, got a book here, actually, that's titled The Middle Maccabees, um, which is quite a good name for them. But um, they that's the independence, and then it kind of just morphs into all sorts of different things going forward. gets very messy. No, well, that's great. Well, I mean, I think we covered everything and then some. Derek, uh, do you have any other questions or should we wrap it no, up here? No, I think, uh, yeah, no, I think, I mean, we could do uh, just, we could do a whole podcast on just these topics, really. And, no, uh, we will. We will. I think we should uh, return to antiquity more and more. Maybe Joe will have you on to talk about the Jewish wars. Oh, uh, yeah. Join us. Yeah. We'll just antiquity. go backwards in time. We'll, we're like starting, you know, we covered, uh, the Cold War, and we'll just work our way back into. Eventually, we'll be in like uh, you know Babylon and, and Sumer. Uh, well, Joe Scales, independent scholar, thank you so much for joining us uh, on American Prestige. Thank you, it's been great. I'm also part of a podcast collective, so who isn't called Ancient Afterlives, and we essentially interview scholars um, about their research. So it can be very niche. 
Um, and most of us who are involved are kind of like, uh, quote unquote, biblical scholars. So we tend to focus on things related to biblical topics, but we're kind of branching out. Um, yeah, we're on Twitter. We've just kind of capped off season one. So we've had like 10 episodes, all different things. Um, if people like the ancient world and they like kind of thinking particularly about all kinds of theory, um, we've done a lot, particularly on gender this series, which has been quite interesting. Um, but all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, maybe for your listeners, uh, one of our more recent episodes on the kind of Dead Sea Scrolls, but particularly in the kind of modern history of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which involves all kinds of questions around you know, uh, national sovereignty and forgery and smuggling and all these other kind of things. So that might be interesting for uh, kind of listeners of your show. Oh, and shout out Mika Huvia, because um, I've never met her, but... Um, I'm really pleased that she thought I might be all right at this. <laughs> well, Joe, uh, everyone check that out. And I hope everyone listening to this has the happiest of Hanukkahs. And we'll, we look forward to having you back. Later.